This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Welcome back to What's Ahead. This week, we'll continue our conversation with the impressive, fascinating, and always informative Mehmet Oz, known simply to America as Dr. Oz. His television show is now in its 11th season, and Americans around the country, and indeed people around the world, recognize him as an authority to help them lead a better life. Now, in this part of the conversation, he gives us insights on health and other issues, but he also discusses things like how his wife influenced him and influenced his career. Fascinating stuff. But first, what's ahead? What's ahead? We have a busy week in front of us. We'll see if anything more happens on Iran. The Senate is going to force an impeachment trial. Even Democrats are annoyed that Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, is dawdling on getting the impeachment articles over. If it was so important to get rid of Trump because he's a danger to the republic, why is she waiting? Get the job done. We have other things coming on the political front. As I mentioned last week, this coming Tuesday, January 14th, we'll have another Democrat debate. This one, the last one before the Iowa caucuses. Now remember, we have two contests in the Democratic Party. One is what you might call for the socialist nomination between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Bernie Sanders, like Lazarus, has come back from the dead. After his heart attack, people thought this guy was a relic from the past, that he wasn't going to cut it this time. Well, he's now the front runner, ahead in Iowa, New Hampshire, doing well in Nevada. So this debate will be critical. The uh, others who are after Bernie, i.e. Elizabeth Warren, are going to be beating up on Bernie. They want to slow him down. The other contest is for the so-called moderate part of the Democratic Party, There you have the front-runner, Joe Biden. But lurking in the background, even though he won't be in the debate, is Michael Bloomberg, who is running ads all over the place, and some of them are pretty effective. So how will Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, how will the South Bend mayor, Pete Buttigieg, how will they do against Biden? Will it come down to a Biden-Sanders contest? Will Bloomberg become a factor? And by the way, both President Trump and Michael Bloomberg have announced they're going to run ads during the Super Bowl. Sunday, February 2nd, the most watched television program in America between 90 and 100 million people. People will not only be looking at the football contest, they'll be looking who had the better, more compelling ads. Each will be running two. $10 million will get you two 30-second commercials. Bloomberg might even run just one minute ad for $10 million. But either way, they'll get more attention than any political ad previously. On the economic front, on the 14th, Tuesday, we'll get the consumer price index. Not much should be happening there. Next day, Wednesday the 15th, we'll get what they call the producer price index, which so-called economic sophisticates think is much more relevant than the consumer price index. Not much is going to happen there. But also on that day, we'll get the petroleum report of inventories with the flare-up in the Middle East. Oil prices popped up, but they quickly came down. And inventories last week were building up. If they continue to build up, you at the gasoline pump will be spared a massive rise. The following day on the 16th, Thursday, we'll get the monthly retail sales report. Is the consumer still strong in December as everyone thought? Looks like it, but we'll find out for sure. 
And finally on that day, we'll get the weekly unemployment report for initial claims. Pretty good this week. If it stays around the 200, 220,000 level in the following week, that's a good sign that the economy still has basic strength. So busy week ahead. The stock market, meanwhile, will go on its own course. As long as the economy isn't seen as faltering, stocks should hold up at least for a while longer. And now we'll pick up where we left off with the legendary Dr. Oz. Uh, on uh, medical school, you uh, met your wife, uh, Lisa LaMole. You call her a powerhouse, motivator. You mentioned uh, Second Opinion, Discovery Channel. You said she was the one who uh, was the pusher, instigator of that. Well, my wife, if you've ever seen the Visine commercials, remember those? You put yes. little drops in your bloodshot eyes. Those are my wife's eyes. So she was an actress, and she wanted to live in New York, which ended up being beneficial because as a media capital, it gave me an opportunity to understand the power of media, as you've witnessed in your wonderful career, uh, as to, to influence people, for good or for not. And uh, she was the one who kept pushing and shoving. I joked earlier that she, you know, in my house, the prosecution never rests. She'll come after me when she thinks that I'm not on target, on brand. Not, but she was the one who, who um, and I met, the best thing I ever did was marrying her. A very thoughtful, uh, spiritual woman, but also very driven. And she'd say, listen, you can do 5,000 open heart operations in your life or 10,000. But I would argue that you're better off doing on the low number and going out there and speaking on the airwaves where you can change tens of millions of lives. And with her leadership, and she was the one who conspired with Oprah to brand me America's doctor, she, she, to, to have me on every week, to build a, a relationship between a doctor, any doctor, frankly, but a doctor uh, who was able to articulate, make accessible information, be a field guide for health and the American public. Because at the time, and this is again 20 years ago, many Americans, when they, you know, they, they felt like they're walking into an airplane cockpit when they're talking about their health. They didn't understand basic stuff. I remember when I launched my show in 2009, I, I talked about quinoa. And the biggest comment I get was, how do you spell it? No one knew that it, what it was. Kale, unheard of. Now we're in a very different place in America. Many more people appreciate the power they play. That when they walk into a grocery store, they're walking into a pharmacy. They know that. They might need to know more about what to do with that information, but they at least appreciate that's a reality. When I, the very first year I was on the show, I said, if you lose, if you lose 10%, 10 pounds of your weight, then uh, you, you'll reduce the chance of having diabetes, heart disease, uh, cancer, et cetera. But no one believed me. They said, it's not possible. I said, I couldn't possibly make it up. It's such a ridiculous thing to make up. You would never bother. The literature is widely re repetitive of that statement, Doctors know it. How can the American public not know it? And here's the biggest truth, Steve. America didn't know this. They didn't get it because we never gave it to them. Uh, one of the observations you've made in the past about medical schools is uh, nutrition sort of just gets a back of the hand. Is that changing? Is there more emphasis on nutrition, do you find, in medical schools now? Marginally different. I, Only I, marginally. Yeah. I And I, I, it's interesting that it hasn't happened in a bigger way. I was president of the student body when I was in medical school. And the, one of the platform items I ran on was to have a nutrition class. Because nutrition in, in medical school, and I went to a great school, I thought, um, was beriberi, kwashiorkor, these you know starvation diseases in Africa that you don't ever see even today uh, that often and in this country. And so 
it, it was a very different argument to say, you know, do you have enough zinc in your body? Because if you don't have enough zinc, your taste buds won't work. And if your taste buds won't work, you're not going to eat food that's good for you because food that's good for you usually has taste to it. And so as, as an example, if you're a heart surgeon, as I am, and I operate on you and your zinc levels are low, which they often are, you won't eat food after surgery because it doesn't have any taste. Well, knowing about zinc helps me. But it turns out knowing about more than zinc is valuable. Omega-3 fatty acids for arrhythmias and brain health. Uh, if you're predisposed to Alzheimer's, the B6, B12 vitamins, folic acid are very valuable. So there's a, there's a lot more to, to nutrition than just, you know, you know Quashicor. But that's a reality that many in medical school say, well, listen, I got to teach them pharmacology. They have to know how to use these drugs, which they're going to prescribe them and get paid for prescribing them. No one's going to pay them to give nutrition advice. That's more of like an a la carte kind of deal. And I would argue that if you have a medical home system where a doctor is responsible for your comprehensive care and being paid for that, not being paid for the prescription medications, but being paid for general health delivery, we can shift that system. But that's why you have to change the incentives to change the way medical schools function. And of course, you constantly warn about the whites. White rice, white flour, white pasta, white sugar, the whites are a catastrophe. And they are nutritionally depleted, calorically rich, so they're cheap. Cheap calories, uh, again, many folks who are on the bottom half of the socioeconomic pyramid are are compelled to eat those foods because they're hungry. But those foods do not serve you well. The best way to lose weight, best way, eat real food. Eat food that comes out of the ground, look in the way it looks when you eat it. Because those nutrient-rich foods that have not been adulterated uh, are something your body recognizes, your brain craves, and is satiated by. Whereas if I give you an artificial sweetener, well, shouldn't you lose weight? Well, here's the problem. Artificial sweetener is a couple hundred times sweeter than sugar. And so you eat the stuff. Your, your brain, because it's talking to your tongue, says, well, you ate something really sweet, but you didn't give me any calories. So go back and get some. What you call empty calories. Empty calories. Now, uh, talking about your uh, wife, she had an understanding of uh, alternative medicine, Eastern mysticism. She's also an author. But her father, she came from an unusual family. Her father, also a cardiothoracic surgeon, was part of the first team over half a century ago that did the first successful heart transplant in the United States. That's quite something. But he also did a few other things that uh, I think you've uh, picked the spirit of, and that was uh, why Rolling Stone called him the rock doc. He was the first surgeon to play rock music while performing surgery. You know, what, what, an embarrassing moment in my life was I was playing Trivial Pursuit. And in, my, in, our, in our family, board games are full contact. I mean, we just battle it out. So we're playing full Trivial Pursuit and we're winning. My father-in-law gets the final question. And the question literally is, Rolling Stone called this surgeon rock doc and, get, and listed his name among the options. How many people pay, play against someone who's the answer to the Trivial Pursuit question? <laughs> yeah, he's a very famous surgeon, invented a lot of techniques we still use today. My mother-in-law would kid me because I would call him from the operating room. I'd say, Dad, I got this valve in here. I don't know what to do with it. It's, it's not the kind I've ever seen before. And he'd know it all. And my mother-in-law would joke that I was operating by the numbers, <laughs> just crayoning in the well, parts. Well, he was also a, a pioneer in uh, diet, that uh, low-fat diet, which was ridiculed at the time or certainly seen as kind of irrelevant. Uh, he made but, you, but he and his wife, she would kept come up with recipes. Well, my mother-in-law, uh, who's, uh, again, she's the minister, um, but she's a very bright woman. Uh, and her family is the Osborne Corporation, you know, those orange trucks that drive around. 
And so she'd grown up in a in a in a ex- existence where people were starting to appreciate that food was important, but they were just eating a lot of it. In the opulent fifties and sixties, people were dying of of heart disease, and she became aware. Uh, in part because of, I think, issues happening that you're seeing around her in her community that food made a difference in a very big way. So they would plant herb gardens and spices, and she'd start, uh, she became vegetarian. My wife, Lisa, has been vegetarian since she was 13. My mother-in-law made the whole family vegetarian. And my father-in-law started saying, well, but you she sneak meat from time to time. I sneak meat. I, I, well, if I, here's my deal. If I'm eating at home, I'll just eat vegetarian because Lisa's a great chef. But if I'm out at a at a some dinner and they give me you know if i can get fish i'll get fish i'll take poultry next and then meat if i'm stuck with it because i don't want to be hungry but normally <laughs> if you say i'll just take the vegetarian offering they just give you the side they take the meat off <laughs> give you the boiled broccoli it doesn't taste good and you're stuck so i i don't and i don't think meat per se is uh, in small amounts is a major problem um, we've done as surveys on this. It's, it's just, it's not a massive issue, but if meat is your main source of calories, it will be a problem for you. And it's definitely an issue for the environment. So I think meat should be a condiment, small amounts when you need it. And when you're having fun with friends, nothing's healthier, nothing's healthier than having a good time with your friends at a meal. you you can do whatever you desire. Just don't do that every single day. I think that's sort of the rule of thumb. But my dad uh, came up with a lot of deep insights, and I, uh, b- both he and my mother-in-law were very interested in alternative, I actually call it traditional medicine. What are the tactics that were used in other countries to help people get healthier? Traditional Chinese medicine was a good example. My dad was training. The Chinese government had asked him to train some of their young surgeons, and he was then called over to China because he, he needed to train even more surgeons. And you know why they wanted him? Because he'd been part of that Denton Cooley, Michael DeBakey team. And dad means your father-in-law. Father-in-law, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dr. Lamole, he had uh, he had learned how to do bypass surgery because it was basically honed at the, at, in, in, at the Texas Heart. So uh, in China, they didn't have anybody doing heart surgery for coronary blockages because they didn't have any coronary disease because they didn't eat food that gave them coronary disease. This is a classic China study. And so as they began to eat a Western diet in the 80s, they began to develop hardening of the arteries. So Nixon opens China in the early 70s. Within a decade, everyone in China has eaten stuff that we eat in the West. Now they're developing the same ailments that come from that kind of a diet. He goes over there. I went with him as well a couple of times um, and started doing surgery and started teaching them. So he would identify, if you go to the hospital, you go to the right, you have heart surgery and other things. If you go to the left, they're doing acupuncture and moxibustion. Uh, which is like burning a candle near you and heating up part of tissue or cupping, which Michael Phelps had the Olympics last time around. You have those big circular cups in his back of a six foot five frame. So all these techniques and er- the, herb- the herbology in, in, in Chinese medicine was very rich. In fact, artemisin, which is a Chinese herb, is the main way we inexpensively treat malaria around the world now. So there was deep wisdom in these traditional medicine tactics. Same in the Amazon where they, a lot of the chemotherapy we had would come from Amazonian herbs that were poisonous, and they, the shaman there knew this. So my in-laws began to use a lot of traditional approaches, meditation, hypnosis. Uh, these are all ideas that made sense, if you thought Well, there about. was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal that at some major hospitals, they're now using a poetry. They're having urging patients to either hear poetry or compose poetry. Well, at Columbia, we sing. And I'll tell you why we sing. You know, the, the lyrics of songs are like poetry, but also when you sing, you have to use your diaphragm. You have to breathe. So it gets patients to breathe, but in a joyous way. We have them do yoga, but the basic variants of it, but it seems to work. Uh, we have them draw art. 
Now, this seems soft, touchy-feely. What are you talking about? Why would you bother? I'm a heart surgeon. If I can get my patient to get better, even by a couple days, because I introduced some alternative approach to them getting better, of course I'm going to do it. Massage is probably the best example. After surgery, because you've been traumatized by the operation, you retain fluids. So when you retain fluids, you got to pee that out eventually. Well, how do you get the body to pee it out? Because when you're waterlogged, you can't do stuff. Well, I can give you a pill called Lasix. Lasix is the classic diuretic pill, water pill. It's called Lasix because it lasts six hours. Lasix, right? <laughs> so that's really, that's how innovative doctors are, right? So uh, if I massage you, and we, you know, we have a center that has been doing this, if I massage you, you'll actually pee out the fluid. You'll urinate. Well, why would I not do that? I can get you to pee naturally and not have to force your kidneys to pee the fluid out, which has some complications. You pee out electrolytes you don't need to. Uh, why not just do it in another way? Maybe try it anyway. And that's the big plea my in-laws made. It's worth trying. And it has become now a, a big cottage industry. Now, the other side of this, which is what doctors get concerned about, is charlatans do get involved and start mm-hmm. hyping stuff that probably doesn't work, over-promising. We're seeing that with CBD now. Right. I think CBD probably does work in the right setting, but most of the stuff that's being sold is fake. Most literally, like not like more than half of the stuff being sold doesn't have what it says it has in it. We have zero proof because we haven't done trials on these things. And then we speak to the companies. Some of them are pretty good, reputable companies. They say, guys, there's no protection. If I discover that CBD works better for cancer, I can't patent it and I can't protect it. So why would I spend tens of millions of dollars learning something that only other companies will benefit from? Which is a reasonable thought, which is why... The U.S. government can't hide. They have to regulate this stuff. They have to get involved. It actually helps the good guys. Look at vaping. What a catastrophe. Vaping, just to get everyone on the same page here, we've had dozens of people die, thousands of hospitalizations, because most of the vaping, most of the $10 billion of vaping is probably fraudulent. Being made in countries with no supervision, circulated to this country, people don't know what they're getting. It looks so so real, you can't even tell it's fake. So in Britain, where they think they advocate vaping as a way of uh, getting away from smoking, so vaping properly done has a role, but the problem is, how do you get the good stuff? Yeah, I think I think the biggest damage is that vaping, I personally believe, is a wonderful opportunity to get people off cigarettes. And I've been so impressed by the results when friends, colleagues have done that with vaping. But if you're marketing to kids, bubblegum flavored vapes, I mean, come on, Really? I mean, you're trying to get young people to vape. Now, one-third of young people vape, and I see this through Health Corps Foundation. So I, estimates are one-third of young people vape, one-third of them will smoke. That means you've got, you're introducing 10% of the kids to smoking. And if you take any substance before the age of 20, 22, your brain isn't mature yet. So you're building a belief in your own brain that you need some substance outside of you to cope with the world. So you're breeding addiction. And that's the real risk. Now, the vaping industry is dominated by a couple of big players. And if either they had policed the industry or they had gotten the government to regulate it so it's actually criminal to sell fake products, we'd get somewhere. That's not what happened. And I know this personally because I'm the poster child for fake advertisements. People run fake ads with my face and my name all the you time. You wrote an article, co-authored an article in the Wall Street Journal on uh, the problems with Facebook. You go on Facebook and it looks like you've endorsed everything under the sun. Oh my goodness. And, and they, 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 I went on the Ellen show recently and they had a bunch of fake ads saying that I made Ellen look better with my new magic skin cream. Ellen and Sandra Bullock, you may know, are now litigating uh, against 100 people, John, the John, Jane Doe's, they're calling, you know, the companies they don't even know the company. You can't find the companies. And if you, go to, if you go to Facebook or Google or these companies and say, well, 
who's buying these ads? Just tell me who they are because you're not going to stop it. I'll go after them. You know what they tell you? No, it's confidential. What if I went An to Ford? ad confidential? Yeah, the ads, the person who funded the ads confidential. We're not going to reveal our sources, even if it's a fake ad. Steve, if I ran an ad in one of your publications and it was a lie, and it, let's say I, I took, um, take my Dr. Oz skincare cream, buy it today, right? And I came well, to Dr. you. Dr. Oz diet, lose 50 pounds what, in a week. Exactly, which you could only do with an amputation, by the way. There's no such thing, right? But if I, I mean, I, I've never sold these things. I, 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 and I've never had any involvement with these companies. Don't even know who they are. No one does. But if I come to you and say, Steve, I understand that you took an ad you shouldn't have taken. That's, you know, it's okay. But let me go after these guys. I'll, I, I can protect myself. I have lawyers. I have resources. Just tell me who they are. And you told me no. How would that work? I, I'd be able to come after you and say, you are forced to tell me. I can't do the same with digital companies. They have under, as you know, section 230, they're protected because anything that's online is deemed to be not their responsibility. They're just a billboard. They're a fax machine. You don't sue the billboard company for something written on the billboard. It's no longer a billboard. And I do think this is the same for vaping and a lot of other things. We, our, our regulators are helping good guys police the industry by regulating. It's not that you're holding people back. We need the U.S. government's involvement. And if you don't get involved and put some teeth into it, then folks go have to start flailing around blindly trying to protect themselves. They can't. Why would the digital industries of media be different from print media, which has done a great job policing itself because they have to? Um, you've, uh, throughout your career, emphasized the importance of preventive medicine, uh, not just the fix-it phase, but... Uh, preventing the fixing and the need for the fixing in the first place. And uh, you've said you want no more barriers between patients and medicine. You also said, though, surgery has trained me better than anything else to connect with people. Walk us through that. That's a great insight. If you're going to walk into battle with a patient, you better have a bond with them. So early in my career, I learned a few important messages that my teachers had shared. First, Never take a patient to the OR if you don't have someone that they care about that you can celebrate with afterwards. And I used to think, well, what difference does it make? They're going to be asleep anyway. Well, not quite. Because if they don't think they have anybody in their life that cares enough about them that would be sad if they passed, that's a separate statement about that person and where they are in their life. And so I always insist that they either reconcile with family or find a friend or Go next door, make a friend, have somebody that I can celebrate with afterwards. The second thing I always tell my patients is this is like a pro-am tournament. I'm the pro. I know how to do this. But I need an amateur like you to play up to my level as well. So you've got to cooperate. You've got to get up and walk after surgery. Take deep breaths. Be calm in the face of adversity. I'll trust that I'll be there for you. Look me in the eyes and know that. If I can build that bond with you, you do better. But if you think you're flying off in the cyberspace somewhere, you know, being you know, absorbed by the void of existence while I'm operating on your heart, that doesn't forebode well for your ability to, to deal with equanimity of, because surgery is difficult and the recovery is not always smooth. One of the things, uh, given your Turkish background, that uh, we could use more here, and you've been advocating it, you made, you've mentioned in the past that in Turkish hospitals, a family member must be with the patient at all times, or a friend must be with the patient at all times. Nurses are expected to work with the family on what to do with the patient after surgery or whatever cure they've applied. 
walk us through that. That's a fascinating uh, custom. Well, take the simple example of a bedpan. I mean, nurses do not like going in there and dealing with bedpan issues all day long. They do it because they're professionals. They're the most trusted profession actually in America, and they're wonderful, and they're the glue that keeps the system holding together. But in Turkey, the nurse gives the the daughter of the person who had surgery a bedpan and says, if your loved one is having an issue, help them. And if you're having a problem, call me. And you would never leave your loved one in the hospital without someone next to them to protect them. So at Columbia, I started insisting on little cots, they're more like recliners in the rooms that the patient could get into when they needed to, but at night when they're sleeping in their bed, their loved one would stay with them. And I was shocked initially to meet resistance. And it was theoretical resistance. Well, what if the other patient in the room doesn't want the family member in there? Well, yeah, please. I mean, maybe that might happen once in a while, but frankly, they'll probably have their loved ones stay too if they realize you can do it. And if nothing else, this healthy person can help both of them because your comrades in, in, in war right now. I also recognize that in the most de- delicate situations, you, they wouldn't let anyone next to the patient, like in the ICU, which I thought was horrible because you're isolated by yourself, scared, tube in your throat, you can't do anything. Don't you want to have someone that cares about you hold your hand, massage your feet, rub your shoulders, tell them you're there? So I began to try to liberalize visiting hours because there was no good reason not to have them. It's one of those classic things in medicine, a very old profession, someone hundred some years ago decided not going to have visiting hours in the ICU because it's too difficult. For who? <laughs> Please. Open up, liberalize, let people play a role. The other thing I found is when the family is upset about a patient, what they're most upset about is that no one told them. They didn't know. Well, if they're there, not only do they know, they witnessed it all. So they'll make sure stuff happens. You can put wristbands on people and barcodes on their foreheads. That's all great. Mistakes will still happen. But if someone who cares for you is next to you in the room, you'll get good care. They'll be watching. I guess that's also why we see the rise of so-called concierge medicine, somebody who will look after you in a hospital. You don't want to be in a hospital alone. No, and I think concierge medicine is a good example of how we could actually scale this up around the country. You know, places like Columbia University have gotten rid of all of our tuition. It's free to come to Columbia Med School, free. Now you might say, well, why would you make it free? I mean, you might charge a little bit. The burden of debt was so great by the time these young people finished school, they couldn't afford to be primary care doctors. They couldn't afford to be the front line because they never make the money back. They'll, they will literally mathematically be in debt the rest of their lives. It was like an IQ test. <laughs> no one's gonna do it. So by making medical school free, we've all of a sudden all freed up young physicians to become primary care doctors so they can provide concierge level care that they don't get paid well. So I would say instead of paying someone like me, I'm a heart surgeon that gets paid a lot of money to do a couple hours of work. I heal with steel and I'm proud of my field. I would still do it for less, but you got to take money out of the system where it's spent for those, those skate saves, those acute illnesses and pour it into the primary care system. That's how you build medical homes. That way the person that I'm about to operate on three months before I operate on them gets told by their doctor that their blood sugar is through the roof that the number one reason people with high blood sugar, diabetes die is heart disease. Let's fix your blood sugar today. Otherwise, within a couple of months, Dr. Oz is going to be whacking your chest open. And you don't want a bandsaw being taken to your chest. So let's get going. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Joni patient listens. Some of the things that need to be done start being done. The blood sugar is reduced with medications and with diet and with a lot of other stuff that plays into a role. That that one issue by itself would probably pay for the entire investment you make in the primary care service. But right now, we do the opposite. 
We starve them for resources because they can't leverage, they can't bargain. How are they going to do that? They got to see, you know, 30, 40 people a day. They get squeezed smaller and smaller in the system because they can't lobby for anything. Meanwhile, political leadership is saying, we got to put less money into the system. Agreed, but don't put less money into the part that's essential, which is what ends up happening. Now, dementia, causing huge fear. You had a very stirring show a few weeks back about your mother. First, you didn't see the signs, but there are some things, even though we're far from a cure or far from uh, medicines that can halt it like we do with uh, insulin does. Uh, Walk us through that. And uh, first, the signs we should look for, and second, what we can do to prove the odds that uh, we can at least hold this thing off. So as a warning to everybody, I thought I knew a lot about Alzheimer's. And I would always get up my stage with all the big banners, lists of things to look for. And I missed it, my own mom. And I missed it because it's a chameleon. It sneaks up on you. My mom is a very stubborn woman. Uh, Her ancestors were in the harem. They were kidnapped by the Turkish sultans and brought from Southern Russia. I learned this because Oprah had me do one of those genetics uh, shows. So I got all this background, I didn't even know. But she, but that probably genetically is in her in her, uh, her personality. And so my mom began getting even more stubborn than usual. Now, many people listening out there know stubborn parents, and they might not think it's easy to do. But in retrospect, I could have picked up several times that my mom was making not just stubborn, but irrational decisions. And as I began to fight more and more with her about simple things that I thought needed to be done, ranging from my father's medical care to her own issues, to the house, whatever, anything I wanted to do, she'd come up with cockamamie reasons not to do them. And in retrospect, she had us. She wasn't really understanding what I was saying, and she was resentful of that reality. One of my sisters noticed she didn't put her makeup on the right way. My mom's a very stylish woman. Her dresses weren't matching. You know, these are things that I wouldn't have picked up on, but they picked up on. No one put their hands up. We lost our truth in my family. And I think that's a valuable lesson for others to learn. And I've never had such an outpouring of notes. There are 6 million Americans with Alzheimer's. There are 16 million whose lives are devastated by the diagnosis because you you lose them twice. You lose them when they're no longer able to, to, to talk with you the way they used to. They're no longer really your your loved ones in the way they used to be, but then they actually pass eventually, but it's a miserable time in between. And so that's the first big thing, find it earlier. And the reason that's important is part two, which is you can do stuff about it. Here's the basic p- picture of Alzheimer's. And I've, believe me, I've become a, a, an expert on this now for some talking to people endlessly trying to figure this stuff out. The, you, you end up with a little bit of kindling, right, which is basically the, the, the brain having amyloid plaque on it as it tries to heal scars that are occurring, maybe from infections, maybe from inflammation, like from diabetes, whatever. So you have a little kindling. And then all of a sudden, you start to get some death of the glial cells, the cells along the, that coat these neurons. And that happens for a bunch of reasons. Um, but, you know, it, it, some of it's genetic because your body can't protect itself against these irritants. And then finally, you get a, a full raging forest fire where you have widespread inflammation in the brain. So kindling, brush fire, forest fire. If you can find it when it's kindling before it's already up in flames, you can slow it down a lot. Maybe you stop it. We don't even know, but maybe stop it. And the things you need to do quite effectively are if you've got diabetes, remember Alzheimer's is diabetes of the brain. So if you had inflammation of that level, you, you will get a problem with how you think. And the beauty is when you start dealing with it, you start thinking clearer today. Even if you don't have Alzheimer's, your brain starts to work better, less fog. 
So things that are causing inflammation in your body, they could be metabolic like diabetes, they could be toxins, irritants in your gut, things you don't know about, mold, heavy metals. I mean, I've checked everything in my mom. I'm looking for, and we found a couple little things here and there. Get rid of those as much as you can. Physical activity, especially um, intense interval exercise is hugely beneficial. If you're 75 years old, you don't have to run triathlon. Go walk half an hour a day. If your loved one has it, you walk them and walk them fast enough to get them a little breathy. It's not a stroll in the park. These are sort of move. And then finally, there needs to be some type of a, a, a meditate. You need to keep using your brain because the more neurons connect to other neurons, the more they can cope with a few that drop out. So it's like physical. Yeah. Muscles got to do the brain exactly. as well. You do that, you actually will dramatically change the course of the illness. Of course, don't smoke. <laughs> Well, smoking, you know, that's a, <laughs> smoking is a whole separate discussion. So uh, um, what are some of the clues and some of the big things you see coming? You've uh, either in the way we do healthcare, you mentioned getting more in the home, technology helping out. What are some of the exciting things we can look forward to? Well, there's actually a company called ShareCare that I started with Oprah uh, and Jeff Arnold, who runs WebMD. Mm-hmm. Uh, Forbes has been involved with its sister company, Forbes Travel Guide. But the basic concept, and we've been working on it for almost a decade, and uh, it's a pretty big company now. We're doing about $400 million in revenue, and we've spent a lot of money perfecting how you can connect technology, medicine, and people. And it's not as easy as it sounds. So basic, just if you wanted to have all your health information in one spot and then advice about what to do with it, this does that. And it, so it we, connects the dots. It connects the dots. And we work with a lot of the major insurance companies around the country, big employer groups, a lot with Medicaid. Medicaid patients are difficult because you can't communicate with them, yet they run up a big medical bill when they get ill. So if you can connect with them and say, hey, listen, I'll turn on your, your, your self-service if you just take care of yourself. It doesn't cost any money to turn on your self-service. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not an incremental cost to the, to the company that sells Cell service. Uh, and we actually are in, in Georgia, for example, we have an arrangement with Walmart that the state of Georgia gives all of, we, we cover all of these state employees in Georgia, all of them. So if you're a school teacher or a public service employee and your health is not great and we can incentivize you to do better, the state will actually pay you money, a coupon, and, you, and Walmart will redeem that coupon. And so it basically doubles your money if you buy healthy stuff. So if you're a smoking, overweight school teacher and you go on a diet, lose a little weight and stop smoking, all of a sudden the state's paying you a lot of money. Why not? Because they'd rather pay you than the insurance company in the hospital who's taking care of you and ultimately not letting you work as you could because you're ill the whole time. These are the kinds of solutions that I think we need to see more of. And we're seeing Microsoft and Google, other companies getting involved in this space now. Uh, Jeff Trying to prevent the fix-it stage. Is that fix-it? And but... Why not use technology for good in this area? And I'd rather take the money we're currently the $3 trillion spending on healthcare and start to take some of that money and incentivize the right behaviors. We know how to do this. It's not, that part's not rocket science. It does take a little guts to do it because there are a lot of people along the way who don't trust the system. Uh, People who are worried you're going to take away their piece of the pie. But I actually think we don't have to take away people's piece of the pie. People who are doing if you're a drug company making a worthy drug that helps people and saves lives, please charge, make money, invent even better ideas. Right? I'm completely supportive of that. We might use a little less if less people are sick, but that's not going to sink your business. Your margins will still stay healthy. 
Likewise, if, uh, if a hospital is taking care of people for the appropriate reasons, if you happen to avoid heart surgery so Oz doesn't have to cut your chest open, I'll do one less open heart operation. It's not going to bankrupt the system. Uh, but what will bankrupt the system is everyone pointing fingers at everybody else and no one with the political guts to say, this is what we need to do. And I don't think Medicaid for all is the best solu- Medicare for all is the best solution, but you're probably going to want to have some public support for people who don't have coverage. Do you see then a system coming along where, like we do with food, government doesn't run the farms, but uh, you have a lot of high tech, a lot of entrepreneurship in agriculture. A lot of people don't realize how much there is, but you do have uh, if people have problems getting food. You do have food stamps, food 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 banks. You so uh, so yeah. so uh, you're covered. You get the food, but uh, you. Uh, don't have starvation in this country. Crony capitalism is an existential threat to the country. And when you have entrenched groups who are scared of change because they they worry about how it hurt their bottom line, and I completely understand why that will be thought, but they'll hold on to a system that's broken for too long. And ultimately, when it really does break, the solutions that come in its place will not be good for anybody. We don't want radical change. I was, you know, there's a great book called the. Uh, it's called the Great Debate. It's about Edmund Burke's thoughts versus Thomas Paine's thoughts. And Thomas Paine, obviously, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote much of his ideas coming out of the political philosophy of both of these two great, uh, 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 brilliant philosophers. But what Edmund Burke would argue is uh, that we don't want to throw away the wisdom of generations of people before us. The, providing healthcare is not a novel or unique process. It's been done. It will continue to be done. It has to continually be iterated, but it can't be stuck in the mud. And if you don't allow it to mature and keep up with people uh, and their needs, uh, then the crisis that we're currently facing, and I see this with my viewers, because my viewers, network television viewers, a lot of them are having trouble. And when someone says, I had diabetes, I didn't have insulin to treat it, I got sick, I lost my leg. Well, my goodness, the amount of money we just spent, just being, forget about the humanistic, altruistic, appropriate belief, compassionate desire to keep people and their legs attached to them. But when they're losing limbs because they can't afford the care they get, that's devastating financially to the system. This is not about being a nice person. It's just not good care. And the most expensive thing about medicine is bad quality medicine. And I'll leave you with a proverb my father shared with me. Uh, in Turkey, there's a saying that if it, it, if it, it takes one fool to throw a penny down a well, but 99 wise men working all day to get it back up again. Let's stop throwing pennies down the well. Dr. Oz, I want to recommend to our audience a piece that uh, you wrote called The Amazing Health Benefits of Kindness. <laughs> and uh, again, it's not just the science. Mark Twain, <laughs> my favorite American writer, said that even deaf people, uh, said deaf people can hear kindness, blind people can see kindness. And we should remember that. Dr. Oz, thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you. Bless you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Dr. Mehmet Oz. A lot to learn, both about the man and what he teaches us. And now, my reads of the week. Two of them. First one, called The Neo-Socialist Delusion. It's written by Jerry Muller, M-U-L-L-E-R. You can find it at foreignaffairs.com. It also appears in Foreign Affairs magazine, but you can find it online at foreignaffairs.com. He says wealth is not the problem with the economy. He makes the point that if these socialist policies are put into action, 
he says they would lead to disaster. Makes the case, wealth is not the problem, it's the obstacles standing in the way of people getting better jobs and the opportunity to move ahead. The second one is an editorial from the Wall Street Journal called Gone Baby Gone. It's about Carlos Gone, the former CEO of Nissan. It's G-H-O-S-N. This can be found on WSJ.com. And it makes the point the former Nissan CEO offers a compelling case of his innocence. He's been under arrest, as we know, in Japan for 14 months before his daring escape. And what comes out in this article and others like him is how medieval, absolutely barbaric the Japanese justice system is. If you're arrested in Japan, you're assumed guilty. And the way they rig the system is that if you're arrested, 99.4% of people who are arrested are convicted. The way that Japanese authorities do it, they force a confession out of you. Carlos Ghosn described in a press conference in Lebanon how each day he'd be told, sign this confession. And if you don't, we're going to go after your family. We'll find something about them. We'll arrest your wife. We'll arrest your children if we can. So sign this confession. Eight hours a day, the light's never being turned out in his room. Really bad stuff. Ghosn makes the point that what he was accused of is not a crime. It was the kind of stuff you'd normally settle in the boardroom. But for political reasons in Japan, they decided to arrest him and try to destroy him. He realized he was never going to get a fair trial. And if anything, he would just rot in jail in Japan unless he signed their bogus confession. What has happened to Carlos Ghosn, however, has shown a spotlight on how terrible the Japanese judicial system is. And that kind of shame may lead, finally, to real reforms in a country we all thought as an advanced and developed country. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.